Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I have on the show today my good friend, Josh Ryan Butler. Josh Butler is the author of two incredible books, uh, The Skeletons in God's Closet. Uh, subtitle is The Mercy of Hell, The Surprise of Judgment, uh, The Hope of Holy War. That was published in 2014. And also um, his more recent book, The Pursuing God, A Reckless, Irrational, Obsessed Love That's Dying to Bring Us Home. He is a beautiful writer, an incredibly thoughtful dude, um, uh, one of the most well-rounded Christian leaders I've I've ever met. And we met Gosh, when did we meet? Probably seven years ago, maybe, um, and be, have become friends from a distance. And uh, have so much respect for this guy. Um, our plan for this conversation was there was there is no plan. Uh, the one rule of Fight Club is we don't talk about Fight Club, right? <laughs> um, yeah, that was uh, the one. The one rule I told Josh is like I, I'm not going to come in with any kind of preconceived agenda in this conversation. He's such a thoughtful dude, um, and so I just said, let's just see where the conversation goes. We ended up talking a lot about just ministry um, in the Arizona context where he's currently pastoring. He was a pastor at Imago Day Church in Portland for um, over 15 years, and now is in a very different kind of setting. And um, we talked a lot about pastoring through COVID. A, lot, a big part of our conversation was on pastoring and just being a lead Christian leader in the context of a lot of political polarization, um, that the whole, you know, p- partisan polit- polarization in our society and how that's affected uh, disciples of Jesus and how we, uh, he has navigated that on a pastoral level. Super helpful. Um, a few weird facts about Josh that I just found listed on his website. These are things I did not know about Josh, but he publicly lists them. So I'm going to publicly read them. Uh, he once got beat up by a billy goat. He's been run over by a VW van and he ate a dog, but he wants us to not worry because this dog was cooked. Josh, I'm still very concerned about eating a cooked dog, but I'm super excited to have you on my podcast again. Um, if you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Theology in Raw. Support the show for as little as five bucks a month. Also get access to premium content. For instance, once a month, I do two lengthy Q&A uh, podcasts for my Patreon audience. So if you have been listening to Theology in a Raw for a while. You remember the good old days when I did lots of Q&A podcasts. I still do lots of Q&A podcasts. They are just for my Patreon audience uh, because I, you know, to, to, to handle all the questions they send in can, can be a lot of work, but I want to focus on um, answering their questions. So if you want to uh, benefit from uh, Theology in a Raw Q&A podcast, you got to join the Patreon community, the, the um the info is in the show notes. So without further ado, let's welcome back to the show, the one and only Joshua Ryan Butler. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I'm here with a good friend of mine, Joshua Ryan Butler. He's so awesome. He needs three names. Josh, thanks so much for being back on the show, man. Thanks, man. Dude, it's good seeing you again, Preston. It's been a while. Um, I feel like I've ha- I had you on, I think, at least a couple times, but I think it may have been like two years. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I described who you are in the intro and uh, I I just, I don't know, that, that I'll never forget. I've told this story before, I think last time you were on. But you were uh, you had wrote the manuscript for your second book, the the pursuing God, 
And I'm like, yeah, dude, I'll read it. I'll consider endorsing it or whatever. And I remember reading that on the airplane ride home from an event we were both speaking at. Mm. And I was so discouraged, man, because it was such a beautifully written book, so powerful, so theologically rich, so well-rounded. I was like, I want to write like this. This is so discouraging. <laughs> well, dude, um, that's amazing to hear because I can say the same with you, man. I, I feel like you're, you're an inspiration for me, dude. The way that you're approaching theology and making it accessible and really writing just rich theology and accessible prose in a way that's just fun to read, but doesn't compromise on like a depth of content and all. Yeah. And it's funny too, man. It's awesome. I've had a, I don't know why the last six months, a load of people from our church going like, dude, have you heard Theology in the Raw? I've been listening to it. And they're just like loving it and blown away. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so awesome. And so uh, now they're they're gonna freak out when, yeah. Sweet, sweet. But anyways, you've been uh, inspiring and equipping and helping a lot of our folks go deeper into life with Christ and Bible and everything. So oh, that's awesome. Hey, real quick, I'm going to put some, uh, I'm, I'm going to keep recording here, but I'm hearing an echo. Wait, it's oh. gone. No, no, it's not you. I was going to put headphones in, but actually it's, I think it's okay. Sometimes when I do headphones, it like screws up with the mic. Um, so I typically don't use them. So I'll keep them here. I think it's okay now. Um, so you, you, uh, you know, you pastored at Imago Day Church in Portland for a number of years. How many years was that? Like 15 years or something or? Yeah, 15 years at Imago and loved it, man. That was home, family, yeah. deep, deep, deep roots there. That yeah. was like, I feel like Imago was on the front end of a kind of, um, I don't know how to describe it, like like a theologically orthodox, but more hipster, grungy, gritty kind of urban <laughs> church. Like before it was sexy, like you guys are doing yeah. it because that's what ministry was. But now people like, dude, I feel called to Portland or downtown Seattle. Nothing against that calling, but it always does seem to be in real kind of sexy urban <laughs> areas that God calls people to, yeah. which is, which is great. But like you, you guys were doing it. I mean, how, how long was Rick there for? Was he, did he start like in the early nineties or something? Yeah. Or? He's still there. We planted in 2000. Oh, 2000. Uh, well, they, I came on in 2001 attending and then came on staff in 2003 uh, but yeah, man, like, and it was kind of the young college, you know, like young college, post-college single. And it, it just had kind of that, that, that grungy vibe, not because it was trying to be yeah. like, if you know, Rick, like, yeah. like he's a former football player, like, you know, he's just very, uh, blunt direct, but I think because of, um, just demographically who we were, you know, like it was right. just kind of, we were Portland. <laughs> and so yeah. it felt like kind of that keep Portland weird, the eclectic yeah. Portland. Yeah. Like, like it, it, there are a lot of very eclectic, crazy personalities that, uh, yeah, it, 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 it's a beautiful yeah. history and season part of, yeah, part of my story for sure. I remember speaking there at some event, I think you helped arrange on a Monday morning or something, some pastors gathering and the church on a Monday morning was so busy. There was like all these like ethnic smell, like food, like people cooking, like, Korean barbecue over here and some Ethiopian dish over there. There's like homeless people running in and out. And it was like a beehive of ministry. I'm like, dude, this is Monday morning. And there's so much going on in this church. It's crazy. Is that, would that be an accurate way of describing the oh, day in, day out? Yeah. Ten years in, you know, I mean, we started, you know, renting, you know, we were at a wedding chapel. And then about five years later, we were at like an old church. And then we were at a, um, uh, renting a high school. And at about 10 years in, uh, an amazing church, Portland Foursquare, which is phenomenal. And they swap. They, they basically swap buildings with us. Uh, like we we had been gifted uh, 
smaller facility that was right size for them. And it's a long God story, just their amazing generosity, God working this thing out. We could have never gotten into that space. But when we did, I think we really said, man, we want this space to be a place for the city, you know, and for God's kingdom, uh, not just Sunday morning. And so Rick really led the charge. Yeah, I mean, his, his sweet spot is missional vision. How do we love and serve uh, the broader city and be engaged with the presence of Jesus and uh, from Portland? And so, dude, there was just ministry hopping out of that building all week long, you know, like, yeah, yeah. and still there's just amazing stuff happening out of there. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So you, you had a recent transition a couple of years, two and a half years ago, moved on to uh, Arizona. Talk. Yeah. Just talk to us about what that tr- transition has been like. And I, I would love to have you unpack maybe the different cultures, maybe both church culture, but also just larger culture, because from what I know about Portland and what I know about like the greater Phoenix, you know, Tempe, Arizona area, pretty different, I would assume in terms of culture. So we'd love to hear about that transition. Totally, man. Yeah. Well, I guess a little of the backdrop of the transition. It was, uh, I had this dream one night and, uh, in the dream, like I'm, I'm being driven in the back of this SUV through the, the city of Portland, you know, and, and I see like this missile flying through the air and boom, it slams into this building up ahead and the whole building kind of crumbles. So we swerve, we go another direction. I see another missile like boom and we go another direction. We're going up over this bridge, one of Portland's bridge. I see this other missile, boom. And it hits the bridge and the whole bridge starts to collapse and crumble and we're going down towards the water. And I kind of wake up right before then. And sometimes, dude, I have crazy dreams because I ate a bad burrito or something for dinner, you know. And uh, But sometimes it feels like, God, it feels like you're saying something, you know. So I prayed about it and just immediately I felt this strong sense of God going, like, dude, everything that's familiar, Josh, like your, your home, your city, your uh, roots, like just your place, everything, it's going to about to feel like it's crumbling down around you. Um, but I've got you was kind of the thing. And mm. with that, the strong sense of uh, God calling us into a new season. And so, I um, mean, mm. I was uh, really beautiful and hard. There, there's more backstory to it. It wasn't just the dream, but it felt like it confirmed some other stuff we've been processing. Uh, and that was hard because we love, and uh, we love Imago. We love our families in Portland, deep roots there, um, all that. Uh, yet through kind of prayer and discernment and with Rick, our leaders there in this process, uh, really, um, man, mm. we got paved the way for us to come out here to Arizona. And man, I got to say, I love it, dude. It's been so awesome here. We love uh, both Arizona. We're a part of a church called Redemption. And uh, Redemption is so first off, I, so I pastor here at Redemption Tempe, which is near uh, Arizona State University. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like the largest college student campus in the country, like in terms of the most wow. students. Body. So it's Hyper college town, yeah. like Tempe is just sort of, it's right outside Phoenix, kind of the, the hub of um, college town. Uh, but then Redemption itself, so we're one church with 10 congregations, and each congregation, uh, I mean, it's an interesting structure. Dude. It's it's, uh, it's kind of hard to describe outsiders, I think. So is that like video venue or, mm-hmm. you know, like, and it, it's not at all like they, we really function with our, every church has their own, each congregation has their own elders, preaching, mm-hmm. teams, all that, and you go to each one, it feels very different because they're in different parts of town, different demographic. One is Spanish speaking, okay. uh, and it's like 200 people. Another one's in kind of the business district is, you know, 3,500 people. You go, another mm-hmm. one, it's more low income and uh, uh, hard part of town. There's a lot of, you know, uh, homelessness and drug addiction issues that people are facing on that front. So uh, but we're all kind of in it together. And uh, Arizona's been issue. I'd say so. 
where we're at has felt very um, ideologically diverse, I would say, <laughs> like, because uh, where I was from, like, you know, I, I love Portland, but it's more like a, a, a progressive echo chamber, you know, and so <laughs> at least in the in the hub, the part of the city, the circles I was in, you know, it just feels like you're in this feedback loop of kind of the, uh, I don't know, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah, Portland India has got a lot of truth to it, right? Like there's that, and here going, man, there's a lot of both, uh, uh, I've encountered a lot of both, um, the left and the right and everything in between, you know, like there's a strong kind of ideological diverse. People are like, uh, people are pretty, I found, you know, like, uh, opinionated, but in a fun way where it's like, you let's just get into it and talk and dive in, you know, and, and it's, uh, all that statement. I, I've, I've enjoyed it. It's been on that front. I've enjoyed it. It's been a lot of fun. And just in general, man, it's beautiful. I love, yeah, yeah the climate, the church body here, the, the Phoenix area. I love the Southwest. It's just, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful. The de- the desert has a a mystique and beauty to it that I love. I mean, some it's not everybody's cup of tea. Um, I mean, I appreciate lush mountains like the Boise area. I mean, it's just like beautiful, you know, r- rivers and snow peak mountains and everything. But there's something about the desert that just I'm always intrigued by. There's a beauty there. The red rock and the formations and the just the, the way the the sunsets, how they just echo off the landscape in a really unique way. And yeah, mm-hmm. I love it. And that culture, the Southwest culture is really, I just got done reading um, <laughs> uh, Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. Wow. I haven't read it, but it sounds amazing. <laughs> I, so I, I, don't, it? I don't know. People, my kids are saying, so did you, you know, you finished your book, Daddy? Did you like it? I'm like, I, I don't know if, I don't know what word to describe it. I'm just kind of simmering in it um it's a really hard book to read um really i mean sometimes you'll read whole paragraphs and you're like i don't know what i'm reading like it's just at least for me i'm but i've I've, other people say the same thing but anyway he the whole thing is kind of in the southwest and he's so like picturesque in how he described things but in in almost like an unclear way so like i can't say i can picture it's just his but his his attention to details is really fascinating anyway that's not why you're on the show but (laughs) <laughs> um, so the ideological diversity is interesting because I have heard from many pastors, almost every pastor that I talk to, unless they are in an echo chamber, um, which, so, uh, John Tyson's the only one that I've talked to who says, dude, I'm pastoring in Manhattan. Nobody in my chir- church voted for Trump. Like it wasn't, there was no, like, you know, it, it, it wasn't we didn't have kind of tensions along political lines. And I'd imagine Portland might be, well, I don't know. Um, But you said there's ideological diversity. Given the fact that this last year has become very polarized, the intensity has ramped up, gasoline is thrown on the fire. Has that affected your ministry? Has it been challenging? Have you, that, that greater societal polarization, have you, is that, also happening in your kind of ministry context or has it been more more chill <laughs> oh man of course <laughs> yeah let's open the can can of work <laughs> no totally man uh it has been it has been interesting you know I, I think one of the biggest challenges i've found has been uh people reading into stuff you know like you have kind of idea like, i wanted to do call man stop reading into Stuff. If I wasn't a Christian, I might use a different word than stuff. But uh, <laughs> stop getting into stuff, man. Uh, because, like, you just give a few examples. Like, uh, 
there's been so much of this. These are just kind of symbolic examples. Yeah. Um, we had someone at our church going, dude, why do you guys have these all lives matter signs like all over your church building, all over your campus? And I was like, what all lives matter signs are you talking about? They're like, dude, all over your church, there's like these posters, big billboard, like all lives matter. I'm like, Oh crap, dude, do we get like graffitied or tagged or you know, what happened? Can, can you show me these signs? I you show me these signs. So take us out and we're going to look at the building. And for like over 10 years, our motto, our mission statement kind of around the church is all of life is all for Jesus. <laughs> like, all of what? life is all for Jesus. What? And they read that and thought, dude, they're saying all lives matter. Like it's like, this, and I'm like, dude, stop, stop reading into stuff, you know? Wow. On the flip side, maybe this is a, a bigger one, but man, I, uh, Back earlier in the summer, uh, I had uh, kind of given an update to our congregation. Uh, we had given uh, $1.5 million to churches hardest hit by COVID. And uh, so trying to toot the horn away, I was just going, man, we, we expected to get financially really hit hard, you know? Yeah. And we didn't. We were really generous, but we had friends, churches, networks around the country who were just getting uh, hammered by COVID. And so we said, man, God, we want to be generous. So redemption as a whole— yeah, and so I was given an update and explaining, you know, uh, about about half a million went in the Bronx, uh, relationships like City of City Network, just we're close friends with there, uh, predominantly black and brown leaders like leading on the front lines who were really just getting hit hardest by COVID in, right. in that season. Um, another big chunk went on the Navajo Reservation up, up north, uh, where they were just getting hammered, if you remember, you know, last, last summer by COVID. And so I made mention of that. And shortly after this rumor began circulating based off that, that we were funneling millions of dollars to Black Lives Matter, the organization. <laughs> and I was like, like, what? And so literally, like, stop reading into stuff, you know? And so literally, I mean, this is even like uh, two weeks ago, I'm, I'm in my office with someone who's like, they, they left a while back and they'd been members and, and they hadn't responded to communication. And finally, they were ready to talk, you know? And I was like, well, what was it? You know? And, and, uh, and it was like, well, I just became so upset when I found out we were funneling all this money to the organization BLM. And I'm like, dude, wow. why didn't uh, you know, like, why didn't you come? Uh, and, and so anyways, dude, that's just like uh, the tip of the iceberg. That has felt symbolic of um, my sense would be like, dude, this last year, the national narratives have become so polarized and, yeah. and strong and everything talking about that, right? That's nothing new. Um, but what I found pastorally is like when people are entrenched in those narratives, like if you say something here, uh, you know, kind of the audio, like I point to this now, you say something here and people over here think you're saying way over here, you know, or people down here think you're saying way over here. So people are often reading yeah. way to what's being said way more than is actually being said. Uh, so honestly, yeah, in uh, one of our congregations, probably about uh, 1,500 people left out of about wow uh, 35 so you're talking about like 40 40 percent or so of the congregation left and my bent would be dude i think over rumor and innuendo like there were five to ten influential people who were angry and left because it was kind of the you guys are seeing crt marxism we never even talked about crt mark you like kind of like you even mentioned the words race and justice or something you know and, and oh, like they're just yeah. going uh so there were some influential folks that just started slander and gossip and like spreading lies, like accusing uh, the church of saying things that were never said. And so anyways, and that stuff spread. I mean, there were even other ministries and leaders who tried, I think, kind of poured fuel on the fire and capitalized on it. But 
Wow. But I think, man, that, that issue of people reading into things and slander and mm-hmm. people being more shaped by some of the national narratives yeah. than actually life as the body of Christ on the ground have been, yeah, it's been crazy. Have you reflected on just the psychology of that? Like it's, I, the last couple of years I've been fascinated with, um, the psychology of interpretation, interpretation, exactly what you're saying. Like, like how could somebody, what's going on in their brains and, and maybe their background, their journey, the, like what's feeding that really yeah. skewed interpretation. I, I get, I mean, it's, <laughs> I've had people read books of mine and, you know, for instance, for example, I think within the same week, I got emails from people who read my book, People to be Loved. One of yeah. them threw it across the room when they came to the part where apparently I advocated for conversion therapy, reparative therapy. I'm like, where did you? Um, and then another person couldn't get past the first chapter because I was radically affirming of same-sex marriage. I'm like, these are two, like, you guys should get the same because it's like you're reading two completely different books because I I do neither one of the, I mean, none, none of those are true, but, and yet they're two polar opposite views. Um, so it's not like, oh, everybody kind of reads you as more progressive than you really are. It's like people are reading me as either radically conservative, or radically progressive. Um, and that's, I don't know, the last few years, I've just been fascinated at that. Exactly. Your first illustration of like, all life is for Jesus and all lives matter. Therefore, you're a racist church or whatever the conclusion they would draw. It's like, what is... What I mean, is it simply they're just bathing in polarized narratives fed to them from certain news outlets? I mean, is it as simple as that, you think, or is there more going on? Mm, man, that's a great question, man. One of the most helpful things for me this season has been uh, on that front, I think, has been uh, Jim Mullen. So he he's a we, we co-lead here. We're kind of co-lead pastors here at the congregation. And, um, dude, he's just brilliant, man. I. I it needs to be here. I'm going to butcher this because whatever. But it's been really helpful. He, he led some of this stuff. Uh, we did a thing last year called King of Kings campaign, kind of summer, fall, approaching the uh, election season, all that. Just trying to help equip our folks to think uh, gospel, you know, to have a gospel framework for our political engagement and all. And his observation, one of the things that was really helpful for me related to the psychology, kind of where people are coming from with this, I think, was um, his observation was like, Dude, the left-right categories don't seem to do justice to what we're seeing today, you know? Because mm-hmm. uh, even amongst the quote-unquote left and amongst the quote-unquote right, there's division, hostility. So much division, yeah, yeah. Totally. And what he did, you know, is kind of like if you envision like uh, you got the line, like the, the right-to-left line, you know? But like a top-down line of like the modern, postmodern oh, of yeah. going like four quadrants here, you know? And a lot of uh, – there's – and the, these four quadrants. So if you think of like the upper right, sort of the modern right, and he had a key word for each one that was kind of felt like a driving the value, sort of defining these, these areas. So the upper right, kind of the right I grew up in, would be more, the word might be uh, responsibility. It's you know, like Reagan era and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, you know, like, like take responsibility for your life. Um, uh, maybe today even like a Jordan Peterson, you know, make your bed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Take responsibility. Where upper left was more like progress, like kind of we can change the world, Clinton's foundation, like let's start uh, the nonprofits and things that um, let, let's let's end and hunger and poverty, let's, let's change the world. Um, lower left, though, and where you kind of go on the postmodern wing now, postmodern left, 
uh, feels more like identity is the driving thing, like looking internally and, and who am I? How do we yeah. affirm internal self-expressivism, those kind of things? Where in the lower right was more uh, security, like the sense of like, dude, there's a sense of threat, like there's things encroaching on way of life. And, uh, and so for me, that became helpful as almost like a, because we're in an ideologically diverse environment, as I was meeting with people and encountering, you know, just our, our mm-hmm. congregation, um, recognizing those underlying values where I think a lot of people wanting that value to be elevated and affirmed mm-hmm. or then hearing if you're speaking to a different one, it felt like you were, yeah. you're for that team over there kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and I think Jim's observation too, is just how, all four of those we see in the kingdom. I mean, we see responsibility, yeah. we see progress, Garden of Eden, you know, unpacks the biblical era, but we see responsibility, we see progress, we see identity, we see, um, we see security. But when those things get, those can become idolized and overly mm-hmm. elevated, that seems to be what's happening in a lot of sort of the mm-hmm. popular discourse today, you know, is like the idolatry of those things. And so, yeah. We were to look at them as four political religions, you know, like modern yeah. political religions. Dude, if you were pastoring in your church and one day like 50% of your congregation converted to Buddhism, but they were still coming, you know, or maybe Mormonism or something, they're, they're showing up and acting like nothing happened, you know, like, oh, well, hey, yeah, Jesus to you and we're here or whatever. You're like, no, dude, there's a discipleship crisis. Like you've converted to another religion, you know? And in the church, like the observation, Jim's observation and ours just going, dude, we've got people left and right in the in churches in America right now converting essentially to other religions, yes. but they don't call them that because they're rooted though in the idolatry of these yeah. various things, things that are good things, but have been made ultimate things. Yeah. Would, and would so you... I don't know, back to the psychology, I think that, that for me has been helpful. Just kind of like, I feel like a lot of what I've seen driving things for folks is an elevation of a certain ideal and a cultural narrative that's wrapped up around that, that thing yeah. that's been idolized. Um, would That's you say become, that that, I mean, national or, or more specifically political, even more specifically, let's just say partisan allegiances in the church, would you say that this is creating a, I love your phrase, uh, would, uh, uh, cat- discipleship, what would you say, catastrophe, not catastrophe, crisis, that this is creating a discipleship crisis in, in the church? Would you describe it like hmm. that? Oh, Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the main reasons, you know, too, is not just like, I think we think of discipleship, like the personal life of the individual. I think more like discipleship is a part of the community of faith, like the, the body of Christ, the community of believers, because uh, like our, my conviction has been, dude, we need each other. Like we need, all of us have our leaning or our flinch towards some of these different quadrants, so to speak, towards sure. some of these different views. And we'll probably have strengths in those areas. And I think as, as the church, the body of Christ, we're we're stronger together than we are alone, you know, staying at the table together. Yeah. But I think it's uh, tearing the body apart. And that's, you know, like, because people yeah. are abandoning. And it's not saying you got to be centrist or something like that. You know, it's, it's almost like you need to hold all four extremes at once, huh. but in the right way under the lordship of Christ. And, I mean, I've talked to people and this equally on the left and the right. And yeah. I would say, I've you know, I like the quadrant. I, I need to. I need to consider that more. I think that's probably more nuanced. Um, but, you know, I, I would say, you know, more the radical left, radical right, or people that just are really, they're all in on one tribe or the other. You know, either Trump is the Messiah or he's the Antichrist, you know, um, either 
and and the the kind of anti-Trump hysteria has created this almost messianic complex surrounding Biden and and the the people who's rescuing us. For, you know, if, if Trump is either Satan or the Messiah, then Biden is either the opposite too. You know, it just it creates almost this um, reverse effect where the same messianic complex that some people wrongly have towards Trump from the right, it's almost like that's just there's this whiplash effect for the other side. And I've I've talked to people on both sides that like. I'm pretty con- and they've some I I can I've I've quotes in my head that are unbelievable where they're like coming from either far left far right like I just I just can't be around anybody on the other side I'm like so you're trying to tell me you can be around another Jesus follower <laughs> who oh. voted for their side like your unity in Jesus is not enough like you need political and it's like it's just a bl- they just can't like that is the enemy I'm like this, this is and I talked to pastors. I mean, you said 1,500 people left the church or whatever. Like, that's not uncommon. That's a high number. But, I mean, almost every pastor I talked to said, this is, this is, this is, we are being divided through, across political lines. You've been in ministry for a while, Josh. I mean, have you seen anything like this before? Because we've always struggled with our blending our national identity with our kingdom identity. Uh, have you seen anything as polarized and, and as much of a crisis situation as what we're seeing now? Dude, man, it's... I, I haven't yet internally, you know, like within the church, internally within the life of the church. Uh, and yeah, I, I have not yet. And I'm sure I know the church has been through it before, but in my personal experience, no. Mm-hmm. But I've been really, I mean, just struck by, inspired by like, dude, Jesus bring in the tax collector and the zealot, you know, like, <laughs> and I found myself wondering like, dude, what the heck were those campfire conversations like at night after a day of ministry and walking with Jesus together, you know, and just going, cause like back in the day, like tax collector, I mean, they were like working for the man, the oppressor. They were like extreme one side, you know, and then you had like the zealous wanted to burn the whole thing down and extreme on the other side. And so, I mean, it's not. That's a, that's over- a, that's a, that's a proud boy and a Bernie bro. <laughs> yeah, <totally. laughs> or the leader of BLM. And I mean, and everybody's going to hate those analogies or whatever, but like it's, it's no, it's people who are fundamentally opposed to each other, but they're leave part of their discipleship journey, but also the radical conversion experience is leaving behind those allegiances for a brand totally. new allegiance, right? I mean, <laughs> totally. And that be messy as all get out, you know? And, and I mean, I've been struck too, I, just some of the research work on the, the early church that a number of scholars have done, but just the claim that like, dude, one of the most controversial things to the Roman empire for the early church was the cross section, the crazy cross section of people that it brought together like around mm-hmm. the table you had across ethnicity, across class, across uh, gender, like people gathering together and their common identity is one to, to eat together, to share a meal together, to be together as one. And that that was just unheard of, like the shockingness of that. And I think one of the challenges just for the church is that we're unwilling to be together. Like as soon as yeah. something comes up, like I'm out, you know, and for, for, for many, and it, I think it reveals where our real allegiance is. Yeah, you know? totally. How have you guys handled the, I guess you, you kind of mentioned it a couple of times, the, the race conversation, because that, that does seem to be one really important area that Christians need to press into. And yet again, they're taking their cues, I think, from really strong, opinionated voices across the spectrum. And for the... for. The, I think you're a helpful voice here for those who are watching the podcast to know who you are. Like, just imagine all of humanity kind of melted together into one human being. And that's Josh, but like you are the most 
ethnically like composite person I <laughs> what what's your ethnic heritage because uh, <laughs> and, and yeah. you've ministered largely in kind of more white dominated context but <laughs> yeah totally so uh so my mom is mexican my dad is irish so that's kind of the the main, main backdrop there and you can pat you can pat you can pass for anything right i mean you can go anywhere <laughs> in the world <laughs> um, i had a buddy back in the day and he was like man you should uh you should model josh i'm like yeah dude i'm ugly as all get out and he was like yeah you are oh thanks a lot dude. he's like you are but it's like dude the thing and you know the today is like you, you know that you would look at someone identify like hey that, that's my that's my brother that's my that's my, my, my man you know and he's like yeah like people have guessed over the years and people yeah. have guessed like are you Eastern European or Israeli or <laughs> or is it Latin America? Pretty much, I haven't gotten Asia. Yet. Pretty much anywhere else in the world, people have have, yeah, yeah. have guessed, you know, <laughs> from. And uh, but man, no, I, I had someone uh, recently. Someone left the church, uh, but recently, I remember, you know, and when asked why, they said that Mexican Jew talked about justice <laughs> was literally like like their word. The Mexican and I was like, Jew. whoa, dude, and I'm like, okay. Hey, I ain't Jewish, <laughs> but Jesus was. So if you have an issue, you gotta take that up with him. You know, like, and B, I am Mexican. I, I don't know what to do about that for you. You know, like, but like, I mean, the accusation of uh, social justice. I'm like, dude, there are a lot of versions of social justice out there that are not biblical. Right. But biblical justice is always social. You know, and so oh, yeah, so I do feel like the press in and talk about biblical justice and. As far as how we've been approaching the race conversation, uh, like I mentioned, one of the strengths at uh, Redemption is we're 10 congregations across the city, and we've got a lot of uh, diversity in our just kind of leadership when it comes to leaders within Redemption across the board, as well as different lead pastors in different contexts. And so uh, one thing, like recently we had what we called like a gospel and race forum, mm. where we did a lot of online just because of the season that we're in with COVID and all that. Um, but on this gospel and race forum, uh, part one was trying to lay a theological foundation for why race and justice is so important. There's a document that a number of us, we have kind of a theology team that I'm part of, but really props to Seth Trout, who's out there. Uh, Seth really led the charge in developing this document, but ran it through the grid with input from a lot of our various leaders here within Redemption, as well as Friends Nationally, and really put together a theological uh statement that was um, declaring proactively, here's what we believe about this, uh, and really basing that on, I believe, a healthy, robust biblical foundation. Um, so we did kind of the gospel and race forum. Part one uh, was seeking to front load that. Going, this is why this is a gospel issue that we're not backing down from. Mm-hmm. Um, and part two, I think, uh, was and is, like in part of the process, been seeting to Elevate and listen to uh, voices, perspectives um, of trusted leaders within the body of Christ, both here within our church body as well as nationally. Um, so uh, in my, my sense, you, you mentioned the, the CRT thing. My sense has been like the best defense is a good offense, right? Because yeah. I would say, dude, uh, there are a lot of really unhealthy versions of or visions of justice out there. I think my day, oh man, CRT seems like complex. Like, what do you think of CRT? It's like asking me what I think of sociology. <laughs> like, it's like <laughs> it, there's so much diversity. I think. Um, but I would say, like, honestly, man, uh, I have a lot of concerns with uh, a lot of the ideology. There's a, uh, you've probably seen the book, Cynical Theories. Yeah, uh, yeah. Have me. you read that? Is that good? I've heard it's good. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I listened to really James good. Lindsay quite a bit. I've been following him for a while. Um, yeah. Yeah. Totally. 
And so one of the things that's been interesting is like um, when when I see a lot of like okay, so part, coming from Portland, you know, I feel like I see a lot of the extreme, like the ideological foundations of a vision for justice that's actually often really unhealthy and leads you down a dangerous road. And so I see a lot of those tendencies there. Uh, but then being here in Arizona, I also see there are some figures who are maybe more on on the right. That may be overgeneralization or something, but you know, but folks who are maybe more on the right who are using the language of CRT to shut down any conversation around race and justice. You know? And so it's kind of you know. So I think trying to navigate that. So on the one hand, like um, uh, we have. So what we've tried to do is really front load. Dude, this is why we believe this is a significant gospel issue and provide the biblical foundation for that um rather than getting in the weeds on uh, i mean I've, I've got my concerns about some of the unhealthy ideology that's driving maybe a lot of popular level mm -hmm. stuff today but i also think there's good biblical reasons and foundation and gospel vision for justice um and maybe part of that is just going like dude uh well, I know that's a rabbit trail. I won't go down that. No, yeah. I mean, I, I when people ask me, I with with any kind of slogan or broad brush kind of term or concept, my assumption is that people don't know what they're talking about in the very question they're asking. Not not that they don't, but my assumption is I'm going to need you to define that term, that phrase, that slogan, you know, um, so that I know what you're actually asking. But yeah, when people ask me, what do you think of CT or CRT? I'm like, ask me in five years when I've read all the original sources and stuff and really just, you know, like, I don't, I don't, I'm not a sociologist. I'm not a lawyer. I know it was a began in more um, legal conversations and stuff. Um, but you, if you ask me like more specifically pointed things, like, do you think it's, and I'm not saying this is CT necessarily, I just don't know. Do you think it's healthy to divide the world in terms of like, there's uh, the oppressor and the oppressed or something. I know some people say that's a big part of CT. I'm like, well, I think that, yeah, there's structural evil. And I think that people in power can often, you know, abuse that power. The Bible talks a lot about that, but simply because you're um, maybe being oppressed doesn't um, alleviate you from moral responsibility either. You know, when <laughs> I use the example, when the Israelites, you know, were in slavery for 400 years and they left, and they started grumbling, you know, God's like, stop, you know, it's like, he, like they still have moral agency. And that's actually when you, Give when you respect somebody's moral agency, I think that actually is very empowering. Um, yeah. uh, th this is something that's interesting because I listen to so much, such a wide diversity of people, and some of the most interesting voices I've been listening to are secular, um, uh, black, um, not conservative, but they would not be, they would be very critical of CRT, they would be more classic, like. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X brand approach to social justice, which they would see as very different than the so-called anti-racist Abraham Kendi and D'Angelo and other approaches today. Like the anti-racist movement is one way to address racism. It's not, sometimes the term can be taken as like, if, if you're not anti-racist, you're a racist. Like, no, that's a, anti-racism is a real specific kind of approach to addressing racism. And some of the, these black intellectuals like Glenn Lowry and, and, and um, John McWhorter and um, Coleman Hughes and many others are they from, again, I'm not, I'm not saying I agree with them. I'm just saying it's very interesting that they would say that some more modern, they would say postmodern approaches to racism are actually disempowering or stripping um, 
African-Americans or people of color with from agency, which actually has a reverse effect. And it actually is in a roundabout way, very, very dehumanizing. It, it's super, it's just super interesting to me. So I feel like I'm, I'm going to listen for about five years, <laughs> maybe 10, maybe 20 before I really, I think, understand an, uh, an issue that it's not and probably never will be a, like my area of expertise. But at the end of the day, I love what you said. I mean, Christians, the Bible is extremely unambiguous that you said it beautifully, Josh. I mean, the gospel comes with social what did you say exactly? Not social implications. You said it stronger than that. Um, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, the, there are many versions of social justice out there that yeah. are unbiblical, but biblical justice is always social. Yes. I like that. That's stronger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. a concern for structural injustice and wealth and poverty and the abuse of power and how oftentimes people with high social status and wealth and power abuse that. Like that's extremely easy for it to happen like these are just basic biblical themes that um i I wonder going back to your misinterpretation thing like i wonder if people are just so bathed in secular arguments that it's skewing their ability to see that some of these things overlap with scripture even though the bible might frame it differently the these issues themselves are very much biblical issues you know Um, yeah and one of the things that on a very practical level i think on that whole crt question when people ask you know what do you think i I think one of my questions is where that question's coming from for them because i found there's often two different motives (laughs) like on one hand there have been the folks who use that question to shut down or dismiss like any conversation around race and the gospel and all that um and i mean there's some macarthur you know people are saying if you even talk about these things you're veering away from the gospel and just going (laughs) yes yeah (laughs) no you're like that's, that's not that's not accurate um, but then I found other folks, I think, who are um, uh, really wrestling with going, man, it feels like there is an ideological foundation under a lot of the popular movement that's happening today yeah. that's concerning. And uh, I'd place myself in that category. You know, like going, yeah, there's like, I think that is a legit conversation to try and mm-hmm. shepherd people, you know? And it's interesting, as you mentioned, even within the, yeah, the, the Cynical Theories book was interesting because it distinguishes, I think, critical theory as a whole, okay. which by and large is very crazy to me. I mean, it's just Foucault on speed with all over, <laughs> you know, um, then critical race theory is kind of a distinct thing. And what yeah. it walks through our history, you know, is, uh, and I'm no expert on this, so I'm just, yeah, yeah, whatever. But, um, but even like two camps within it, how the seventies it formed more legal, like, uh, yeah. around legal intersection of race with, uh, legal issues that were impacting society post Jim Crow, post redlining and all that. Um, but then these two camps kind of the, what we call like the materialist camp, uh, was was more focused on concrete issues in society that that were impacting hmm. people in more like prisons, schools, housing, education, those kind of things. And then uh, what became more of the uh, like the the more postmodern uh, approach, which was more focused on linguistic analysis hmm. and like uh, very more subjective things like uh, white privilege and implicit bias and those kind of things. And um, I'm not saying those things should be off limits from conversation, but I remember processing with friends here last year when things were really going down. One of my concerns I raised, and I feel like this hit this that, that hit in my head was going like, I feel like uh, a concern I have with a lot of kind of the Kendi, D'Angelo, popular mm-hmm. stuff like privilege, all that kind of thing, is I feel like it really internalizes and subjectivizes and psychologizes mm-hmm. like this these issues that are my mind more concrete out like the legacy of racism impact that has 
yeah. impact the social fabric and structure to our society. And so I get more excited about going how in our neck of the woods. So here we have a, one of the things that we try to do practically is create, what we call these prayer and action groups, um, which is going, dude, instead of get off the Facebook keyboard, get off of online, like one of the best things we can do, is, yeah. it's not saying you can't, but it's saying, what if we heavy up our emphasis on actually being leavened in the dough, like actually getting our hands dirty here in our community. So what's happening here in Tempe? So we've started, uh, we want to, the goal is like, you got to be in it for a year and you have to commit. So you got to commit to a year with a group of people. You're going to read intensively to kind of learn and educate, mm. you, you know, uh, on the stuff. Uh, you're going to be committed to prayer and then uh, like through this year on this, and then you're going to be committed to action. Like you know, what is something concrete that we can do here in Tempe, here in our city? So we've started one uh, that is like criminal justice reform mm. and another that sanctity of life. Wow. And both of those, dude, how can we really educate ourselves and learn well, like the, the issues as a whole and the issues in our city and how can we be praying prayerful and how can we get our hands dirty and do something concrete on mm. uh, Issues. And one of these exciting too is I've seen it's it's drawing a cross section of people who are ideologically diverse yet committed getting their hands dirty here in town. You know, well, I, well, I love so I mean it, you said criminal justice reformed and then sanctity of life. So all the Republicans will get excited about the sanctity of life. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't know if you intentionally, but but I mean there there's in a sense that's I mean it's all those are great causes to engage in. But I love that you, in a sense, are giving various ideological options for people across this political spectrum so that they engage in social justice on whatever is driving them. And, and to show them that social justice is not just a Democrat thing. Goodness, it's a Christian thing. Um, <laughs> it's so good. Totally. Yeah. And I think that's been one of the, you know, I know because we're in this ideological diverse spot with the campus and, yeah. the, you know, that part of town everything we're in, uh, you know, one of the things that we try to say as well is like, dude, there are some of you who are really hoping we'll back down on the sexuality conversation. There are others of you who are really hoping that we're going to back down on the race conversation and we're not, you know, like we're going to be in order to be biblical, like these are, we're going to be about both, you know? Yeah. And Yeah. How so, how did you guys it. handle the sexuality conversation? I imagine, yeah, being in, next to a in a college town, a lot of college students and everything. Um, has that been something you guys have had to engage in? How have you navigated that? Yeah, so uh, you know, I've tried to address it, you know, in my preaching. Well, regularly, we just had a we call it first Wednesday. So once a month, we have kind of a forum where uh, we did our last one on sex, dating, singleness, marriage. Uh, I'm starting a. Um, uh, kind of a cohort next month digging into some of the gender uh, issues and plan on using your new book embodied as well to like, Sweet. get, get yeah. people to, you know, processing through that. Um, yeah. And so a lot of it has just been through kind of our existing like pulpit events, okay. forum and things like that. Yeah. Uh, kind of a different question, but I wanted to ask you this. So like um, I know COVID has obviously rocked the church and, one of the ways it's rocked the church is it's um, at least some churches, it's kind of forced leadership to say, what are some things we did pre COVID that we need to keep in our discipleship rhythms, our, our liturgies of discipleship. And what are some things that now looking back, we're like, I don't know if we need to kind of like resurrect that again. Have you guys gone through that kind of like, um, who was it? Um, Phyllis, uh, Phyllis, 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 somebody, 
um, cleaning out the attic. You know, every 500 years, the church has a rummage sale, she says, and, and, um, and, and kind of says, all right, here's some things that need to go. Here's some things we'll keep for the next kind of stage, this new cultural movement. And I think we're in that kind of transitionary stage, like given the internet and nine 11 and globalization and now COVID and things are very different than they were 20 years ago, um, culturally. And yet some churches look exactly the same. And I think sometimes it's healthy to say, what, what do we need to maybe change or do differently to cultivate stronger rhythms of discipleship? Have you guys had that kind of self-evaluation and what have your, what have you come to in that? Yeah. Well, part of our evaluation has actually been going, uh, it, it's been interesting just as we've kind of the, the regathering process, uh, this last year and all, um, finding, man, we're finding a ton of new folks coming to faith, coming to like, not church hopping, but encountering Jesus for the first time. Wow. And, uh, and it feels like God's doing something coming out of the season. I mean, my sense has been, there's been a bit of a pruning with some of the stuff we talked about earlier, you know, but then there's also like kind of this re-up that's happening. And so for us, it's been, uh, a conversation has been, how do we get more like back to the basics and almost like a replanting mindset? Dude, how do we replant the okay. church? Um, not, I mean, I, I feel like our, our, the core of our congregation has done amazing, you know, has, has, has endured through COVID, has stayed in it, whether together in person or online or, you know, it, it has been in it. Um, but uh, it, it does feel like, dude, how do we, you know, one of the questions, how do we almost like replant the church on the other side with a fresh video? We've always had, I think, a bit of transience with, you know, just the college dynamic people here for four years and then often we'll, we'll go. Uh, but even more so, I think some of the things that we've kind of been, uh, maybe had, had a reputation for, but known for in the past has been an emphasis on gospel and culture, like our mm-hmm. modeling it, all of life is all for Jesus going, how does the Lordship of Jesus impact all of life? And so going back to, uh, some of the stuff we've done that we want to kind of re-up and, and get back to has been like, we call them surge tables, but it's basically an intensive discipleship in a small group cohort environment that okay. uh, pastors are helping lead and really helping people get into how does the gospel connect mm-hmm. to um, all of life, not only culture, but vocation is a big yeah. one. So we do, uh, we do something called all of life interviews that my buddy Jim here has, has led over the years, I think is really powerful, but it's like once a month we interview someone on their job, like on their vocation, what they do for a living. And they, they will talk about it through the grid of like creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So we'll ask questions about how, how it fits within God's creational vision, the fall, like the fall, how does the fall show up? Uh, the last one was on someone who's a coroner, you know, and is, uh, a, a, a forensic examiner, like examining mm-hmm. dead bodies mm-hmm. from homicide and stuff during the day and hearing, Hearing about how, yeah, creation, the fall, redemption, restoration, so that was really powerful. Uh, and then these first Wednesdays, again, kind of these monthly gatherings where we try and really hit some of the pressing topics that people are okay. uh, wrestling through. But in kind of roundtable discussion, yeah. not just talking, like getting, getting people really talking together. Um, and then how we push stuff through our, um, how, how we try and help equip people within our kind of communities we've got. Uh, about forty to fifty yeah. communities gather in homes throughout the week, and so you guys, yeah. don't, you don't, you don't shy away from hitting the tough conversations. Sounds like you guys are. We'll talk about whatever's, whatever hot topic people are wrestling with. You'll, you'll go there. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Because I, I know some churches are scared, not scared, but like maybe reluctant to do that um, because 
uh, <laughs> no matter which, if you hit a hot topic, somebody's going to be upset. You're going to get emails. People are going to leave. Um, you're going to rock, you know, you rock the boat and stuff's going to happen. Um, even if you do it well, have you experienced that? Or do you feel like people has it been just part of the rhythm that people are here because you guys touch on these things and, and they like the way you do it or, or, or do you get, you know, loads of emails after you have a gospel and race conversation and their sexuality? Yeah, I think it's interesting. You know, I, I do think there's something helpful about creating avenues beyond Sunday and kind of beyond the pulpit and the sermon because um, uh, it's not like we're afraid or shy away from addressing things that, that need to be addressed there when it comes to the text. But I think sometimes the the amount you can really get into in a context, like I, I, one of my observations, well, that was it feels like there's a new national liturgy, you know, it was sort of like the crisis of the week. And every week there's another, the big thing, and everybody wants you to talk about it on Sunday. You know, like if you, you know, like you got the crowd that's like, if, if he doesn't mention this, I'm leaving this in a real trip, you know, and if he, if he, if he does mention it, I'm going, cause you know, and, and, and my, my, my concern is partly like, I'm not saying we don't ever address and there's a pastoral sensitivity in the sermon to, okay, when it's spoken, but, um, one of my concerns though with that is like, uh, I feel like that national liturgy of the crisis of the week can co-opt yeah. this liturgy of entering yeah. the sacred story, this eternal story of God and his heartbeat for the world. Um, and so I, I do feel uh, a bit protective at times for, for, for what happens in our corporate gathering together as God's people around word and sacrament and gathered in his spirit, all, all that but making sure we create a lot of avenues where for discipleship that um, okay. there's space to actually do some of the deeper dive and to think theologically, to think from a gospel. Yeah. Creation, uh, yeah. We really need to. That's great. Yeah, I, I like, yeah, that's a, cause he, yeah, I, I, I see both sides. Like if some, I remember, well, this a few years ago. I remember there was something, I forget which shooting it was, but the race conversation flared up. Uh, might have been Mike. No, it wasn't Michael Brown. It was after that. Um, and I remember it was like everybody's. This is on everybody's mind. Whatever. I'm like, that is like on a Thursday, maybe. I'm like showing up on Sunday. I'm like, if he doesn't mention this, <laughs> I'm gonna say, how tone deaf are you? But, and I think he did actually. I was, I was happy, and I think we had a prayer and everything. Even something like that, some acknowledgement that. Yes, we are not tone deaf. What's going on? But like you said, like you have such limited time, and you need to, you can't just be controlled by every cultural moment that wags its tail. Like you have to build in healthy foundations of spiritual formation, right? And and worldview, and and just simply engaging the text of scripture. And um, so I like this this idea of having a rhythm of space outside, maybe the the Sunday rhythm, where you can have more of a forum engagement on cultural issues and not even like to frame it that way, but like discipleship issues that are integrated or, or uh, related to the broader culture. My, I always said, you know, my, um, I, I would not, I don't envy your pastoral job, Josh. I, I be the pastor. Like it just gives me an anxiety thinking about it. Um, like being a, but the one pastoral position would that I that it actually would excite me is something like the pastor of like cultural engagement, where my job is to hold bi monthly forums on a Sunday evening, two and a half hours, two hours, Q and A, you know, present on abortion, present on race, have a conversation, uh, present on sexuality, um, 
economics, vocation. I mean, there's so many just broader issues that are rarely really addressed thoroughly on a Sunday morning. That that something like that could excite me, where I'm allowed to kind of be me and not be so worried about all the emails I'm gonna. <laughs> I, if I had that job, though, I would not have an email address. <laughs> I would say part of my job requirement is somebody else. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Anyway. Josh, I got to go. You got to go. I'm taking you over over your time. Uh, real quick, t- tell us about um, the two books. You've written two, right? I haven't missed one, right? Tell, no. Give us the elevator pitch about the two books because these are two brilliant, brilliant, incredible books that everybody needs to be aware of if they're not already aware of them. So, yeah, what, get, what's the, what are the two books? Yeah, so Skeletons in God's Closet, that is uh, trying to help people who wrestle with some of the tough topics of the faith. Um, particularly the subtitle is The Mercy of Hell, The Surprise of Judgment, and The Hope of Holy War. I just kind of go, I don't think that's how most of us think about those. Yeah. Uh, but I want to suggest we often have a lot of caricatures in our culture about what's actually going on in those topics and that when we reframe them back within the biblical story and with kind of a robust historic orthodoxy that um, they're actually really even beautiful and powerful. Uh, so, uh, yeah, Skeletons in God's Closet. Uh, yeah emphasis on the goodness of God and, and how that aligns with these topics rather than contradicts them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second one is called The Pursuing God, uh, and that one is how it's not about us going out to find God, it's God coming after us, so really setting it centered on grace and just uh, what for me has been like the heart of the Christian faith, that mm-hmm. this is God coming after us and our world. The middle of the book gets into themes like atonement, uh, some of the uh, questions of, I, I think, some of the critiques that will uh the trinity and the cross how do those fit things like sacrifice wrath relationship between the father and the son what's happening on the cross trying to uh critique some of the the caricatures that are out there and uh out of what I, i'd see is kind of a healthy biblical view of yeah yeah that jog, that jog, you jog my memory. You, your your treatment on penal substitution was i think some of the best the best out out there where you were you again you 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 deconstructed some of the caricatures and, and framed it in a way that was so much more robustly covenantal and biblical. I don't I can't repeat exactly what you said, but I remember when I was reading that I was like this this is and it was so just clear. You you know it's not like overly academic, but it's you clearly have read loads of loads of stuff. So yeah, Skeletons in God's Closet, uh, The Pursuing God, amazing book. So if you haven't read them, got to read them. So Josh, thanks so much for being on Theology in a Round, man. 